Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we go in-depth behind the controversy over net neutrality. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Last week, the Federal Communications Commission voted to reverse a 2015 rule that instituted so-called net neutrality, which requires internet service providers, or ISPs, to treat all content equally, and regulated ISPs using the so-called Title II Common Carriers Law, which was used in the 1930s to regulate the old phone monopolies. The Obama-era net neutrality rules were strongly supported by internet content companies like Netflix, Facebook, and Google, as well as by liberal activist groups like Free Press, which want more government control of media access and content. But a new president has meant a new head of the Federal Communications Commission, and with support from broadband internet providers like Verizon and AT&T, as well as free market advocates, the FCC has reversed the Obama-era regulations. Now, Mike, let's start by a little explanation. What is net neutrality? Uh, I'm going to outsource the definition of net neutrality to Peter Van Doren and Thomas Fiery of the Cato Institute, who gave a pretty reasonable definition. Uh, first, you have to understand that the internet is simply a series of pathways for transmitting packages of ones and zeros, the basic language of computers, from one computer to another. When content such as email, music, video, this podcast is transmitted, the content is broken down into small packets of information, each of which is sent separately over the internet to a destination computer which then reassembles the information packages back into the content. Network neutrality requires that all the different packages of information be treated and priced alike by internet network providers, regardless of who sent them or what information they contain. So essentially, we're sitting here having this conversation, talking. The audience is out there in the internet. Our conversation is being broken down into ones and zeros, the language of the computer that you're watching this on or the iPhone that you're listening to this podcast on. And then it's being sent through the wires to routers in the bowels of the internet and server farms and God knows where. And it's then being sent onto your computer where it's being reassembled into our conversation. And under network neutrality, the people who control the router and control the wires, the internet service provider, Cannot, uh, cannot show favor either by, making it some re either by making it travel faster or by making it travel slower, all that data, or, and all the, all the rest of the data in the internet. Your, you know, your, um, your son watching Netflix gets the same treatment by the router, under network neutrality gets the same treatment by the router as you are listening to us have this conversation. Yep. Well... Uh, give us a little of the history of the fight over this policy issue. Sure. So the question over whether there should be mandatory network neutrality has been going on since the early since kind of the late 2000s. The uh, the left liberals ostensibly fearing manipulation of information access by internet service providers and also um, the pricing of internet at such a level that the average person or that poor people couldn't afford it, uh, started, started to demand it. And in 2008, uh, there was an order to Comcast that it needed to stop slowing access. Comcast was slowing access to BitTorrent, 
which is a file sharing service that is often used to evade copyright. Uh, and uses enormous quantities and uses of enormous quantities of bandwidth, which is yeah. the 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 uh, the rival resource of of the internet. Uh, Comcast then took the FCC to court, and Comcast won. the the uh, The courts ruled that the FCC did not have the authority to order Comcast not to slow down access to to BitTorrent and to slow down. Uh, the downloads from BitTorrent. Uh, the FCC then spent the next few years trying to figure out a way to institute net neutrality, this is during the Obama administration, without invoking Title II of the Communications Act. But by 2015, they were pretty, they were pretty set that they were going to do it. And then in 2015, Tom Wheeler, who was the FCC chairman under President Obama, ordered that the internet service providers should be regulated under Title II as common carriers, which gave the FCC very wide latitude to intervene in the ISPs' uh, contracts and uh, with the data companies, their rate schedules for use of bandwidth. And then the 2016 election happened, and we got a new government. Yes. And now. a new FCC meant a new FCC chairman, meant a new FCC majority, under uh, a gentleman by the name of Ajit Pai, who had been a minority Republican commissioner in 2015 and had strongly opposed the original issuance of the Title II order. Uh, once he got the majority after uh, President Trump nominated a new Republican commissioner, he uh, announced that he was going to have a vote to reverse the net neutrality order. And then in December, very recently, uh, the FCC did vote to reverse the net neutrality order. And let's take, let's step back for a second to, for the kind of uh, influence watch tracking that we like to do on the show, uh, Ajit Pai, the new chairman who's reversed this order, uh, to be fair, he has a background at an influencer. Yes. Uh, as the liberals uh, pointed out when he announced that he was going to do this, uh, Pai was formerly the associate general counsel of Verizon. Uh, Verizon is an internet service provider. It is one of my internet service providers. I believe it is also one of your internet service providers. Um, and they have a vested interest, Verizon does, in this debate. Uh, Verizon very much wants net neutrality to be repealed, uh, and their former employee now has done so. Now, having said that, the previous FCC commissioner uh, was a law school buddy of President Obama uh, and had fought on the other side of net neutrality. So there always are... Uh, backstories to the people in the most influential positions. Sure, and uh, additionally, the Obama administration, which was fairly involved in convincing Commissioner, uh, former Commission Chairman Wheeler to advance the, the net neutrality order to begin with, uh, they had very close ties to Google, which we'll get into sort of the, the lay of the players, but... Google was one of the companies that uses the most inter uses the most bandwidth and has the most to gain from net neutrality and advocated pretty heavily for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, as, as you say, let's go into a little more about the uh, providers at issue here. First, uh, tell us a bit about the leading internet service providers. Sure. So the, 
the first set of players and the set of players that the media has been most focused on are the internet service providers. They're the people, the, ca the, you know, the cable company that you get your internet from or the wireless service provider that delivers internet to your phone. Uh, these are the Verizon, Comcast, Cox Communications, Sprint, AT&T, T-Mobile, etc. They control the physical infrastructure that delivers the ones and zeros that are then reassembled into content in your computer. Theoretically, they have the ability to block or slow or speed up access to content. And what net neutrality, the regulation would have formerly required them to do was to not do that, was to not uh, block, not slow, not speed up, treat all packets must be treated treated the same. Now, question for you here. Was the Obama-era FCC able to find many examples of abuses like that, or supposed abuses like that? No. Uh, they, they cited four instances over 10 years in their first attempt at a net neutrality rulemaking in 2010. There was... Not an ob there was not an obvious, this was a proactive regulation by the Obama administration FCC. It was not a reaction to, an unfair, to existing unfair business practices. Uh, they the, have a trade group, I believe, the they, ISPs. They do. They, uh, they have a trade association, Broadband for America. Uh, but practically, there are a lot of competitive pressures in the ISP market. Uh, I myself use two of them. Uh, I have Comcast wired to my house, and I have uh, Verizon Wireless on my phone. And if Verizon, let's say, was going to slow my access to Netflix or to slow my access to YouTube, that would be, for me, an incentive to change wireless providers. You know, I might go to Sprint. If Comcast was throttling my access to YouTube at home, well, I just drop it because it's Comcast. <laughs> um, and probably use your Verizon phone. And, and, use, and, use my, and use my Verizon phone in lieu of having a wired internet connection at all. Um, and in fact, as I recall, the, um, the horror stories usually revolve around the ISPs that are delivering internet by wires or fiber to homes, and yet it turns out that among the poor, it's actually much more common to have internet access through phone uh, contracts rather than through uh, hardwired uh, home contracts. I mean, that, and, I mean, that may be true. I, I, I don't know. But certainly, I mean, you can go to your, to your local, like if you go to a mall, you know, there'd be an AT&T store, there'd be a Verizon store, there'd be a kiosk for Sprint. These are all, there's, there's that competitive pressure. And that competitive pressure reduces the incentive Again, unless the ISPs are engaging in anti-competitive behavior, which would then bring in other regulations beyond net neutrality, bring in the Federal Trade Commission, unless they're engaging in anti-competitive behavior that may fall foul of other rules, there is a, there is a way out yep. for, for, for consumers. Now, we've talked about the ISPs. The other part of the equation here are the content providers. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, the, the content providers, also known in the, in the parlance of the trade as edge companies, are the 
services that may kind of make internet. These are the Netflixes, the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks. And the problem that they create for the internet service providers is that they use the, especially the streaming services, YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, Facebook Video, they hog bandwidth. They hog the physical infrastructure of the internet. Uh, Netflix and YouTube alone, YouTube is a, is a Google property, uh, in 2016 used over half the bandwidth. Of the, the entire... Of the entire internet. Yes, for America, I assume. For, yeah, I, I believe mm-hmm. that was for the United States. Um, so the content providers, realizing that they use so much of the internet service providers' infrastructure are afraid that the internet service providers in a non in the new system with net neutrality having been repealed that Verizon and Comcast and Sprint are going to go to uh, Netflix and say you're using a third of our internet you need to you need to pay your fair share of the cost of maintaining and of delivering all the internet that you use to our customers, um, and that the the internet service providers will, if Netflix does not agree to bear that cost, that they will slow the traffic going to Netflix. That it'll take longer to download your the show that you're streaming. Yeah. Now, in the in the recent fight over this, of course, this side too had a trade group uh, with the classically. Uh, impenetrable name of Internet Association. Yep. The, correct. Yep. The there that is the trade trade organization for the the content the content providers. There was also when the original set of rules was being lobbied on in 2015. Uh, they were also supported by the Ad Hoc Telecommunications Users Committee, which consisted of a bunch of uh, kind of Fortune 500 companies that. Aren't, aren't essentially internet providers. Uh, I believe Bank of America, UPS, that, um, among numerous others, that like have websites and do e-commerce, but also but were also in favor of the of the net neutrality regulations and also lobbied on their behalf. Yep, and then of course on the you have the ideological wings. Uh, fighting over the policy area. So let's start with the uh, the liberal side of the equation. Who was fighting uh, in favor of net neutrality? So the the liberal sort of tech policy wonk types uh, generally side with the content providers. They believe that common carrier regula- regulation is the only way to ensure open access to content, which the ISPs may either price out of people's uh, ability to pay, or just choke off for ideological reasons. Uh, the, mo- the most controversial, certainly, group that has been involved is Free Press, uh, which was co-founded by an extreme left communications professor by the name of Robert McChesney. Yes, my favorite quotation from Mr. McChesney would be, uh, I would be hesitant to say I'm not a Marxist. Uh, and he's also explained that his uh, the final goal for him in, of all of this uh, is to simply end media corporations of any kind. 
Um, and of course, they've taken quite a bit of money from the major liberal foundations, uh, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, the Open Society Foundations, Proteus Fund, the Leland Fikes Foundation, which is uh, the personal foundation of a uh, prominent Texas liberal oil man. Not something you say, <laughs> not, not something you say in that order all that often, Leland Fikes. Uh, and then also the Schumann Center for Media and Democracy, which is one of the uh, bigger funders of left-wing media projects. Yes, it's uh, Bill Moyers is its guiding star. Yes. Moyers being uh, a leading left-wing advocate uh, who himself came from uh, LBJ's White House staff. Yeah, wasn't he? Uh, wasn't he press secretary? Yes. So the um, the other thing that uh, that I would want to point out is that the the folks behind net neutrality and the precisely every one of those foundations that you just mentioned uh, have been in previous fights related to uh, free speech um, and that would be uh, immediately before this they were all part of the same group of billionaire foundations that were funding uh, campaign finance reform and the leading foundation uh, in both cases uh, was the Pew Charitable Trusts but uh, there are some others though you want to talk about um, uh, involved in the Obama era FCC sure um, both the Obama administration, the Obama White House, and the Obama, Obama's FCC were very close with these liberal tech groups and also with the, with the edge companies, with the content providers. Uh, Obama, the Obama White House's deputy chief technology officer, Andrew McLaughlin, was Google's head of global public policy. Google is the probably the biggest uh, edge company, even though Netflix apparently uses more data than they do. Um, and the Obama-era FCC had multiple political side staff who once worked with or for free press. Yeah, and of course, the head of Google, Eric Schmidt, was a very prominent supporter and contributor of uh, to uh, both of Obama's Both of Obama's uh, presidential campaigns and also Hillary Clinton's uh, failed Since presidential then. run in 2016. Exactly. So I want to call attention to one thing here, which is that the, the way that um, in almost every public policy fight— uh, the left likes to present itself as an opponent of the big corporations that are threatening the ordinary American. But in fact, what we see in this fight, as in so many, is that in fact there are two sets of uh, corporations fighting each other. Right. It's two sets of two sets of big companies that are on different sides of a transaction. In this case, paying for use of the infrastructure of the internet. Uh, the ISPs are selling it, the content providers are buying it, and the buyers don't want to want to pay less, and the sellers want to collect more, and they have both come to Washington and spent quite a bit of money on very nice lobbying chaps who are going to buy very large houses in Great Falls uh, with the proceeds of this fight, uh, and they're they're just going to keep going at it. <laughs> yep. Now, uh, you've covered the, the left-hand side of the ideological folks uh, fighting this battle. Uh, let's flip to the other side, the free market advocates. Tell us a bit about them. The, on, on the right, the, the AEIs, the Heritages, the Catos, the general position is to be opposed to the Title II common carrier regulation, uh, the argument being that it chokes off in innovation in the provision of broadband broadband internet, uh, especially in rural and other underserved areas. Uh, the 
the little ISPs, and yes, they do exist, have basically been put on death watch by the Obama-era net neutrality rules. Complying is simply more than that they than they can uh, that they can do with the amount of money that they have. Uh, the Commissioner Pai has been very very adamant that it is on the the behalf of the small ISPs that he's doing this. Um, and a lot of the the conservative and libertarian free market ideologues, the argument has gone, there's no obviously compelling reason for this regulation to have been put into place in the first place. There's no obvious reason to believe that Netflix and Google have a moral have the the more moral position that that they should have to pay less for using more than half the internet than than they would necessarily pay under a free market system and so why should the government intervene proactively when anti-competitive behavior can be handled by the existing antitrust laws and by the federal trade commission and if there is you know, widespread blocking and throttling, either for ideological reasons or for anti-competitive reasons, that you could then either congressionally through legislation or through a regulatory process deal with a problem once it actually, you know what it looks like in practice. Yep. Uh, The um, one more tidbit that I want to stick in here on the uh, the supposedly nonpartisan uh, outside advocates, not the corporate advocates. Um, back in 2009, when uh, obviously the Obama administration's first year in office and the FCC uh, is wanting to push ahead with this, even though it's unclear that there, in fact, is legal grounds for the FCC trying to regulate the Internet. In fact, as you pointed out, they lost court cases because they didn't really have the legal grounds for it. Um, uh, a, a classic maneuver uh, that's, again, very common in these kinds of fights, the, uh, the FCC went to a nonpartisan Harvard-based research center, and they asked for a, quote, independent review of existing information uh, so that the FCC could lay the foundation for enlightened, data-driven decision-making. And so they did indeed get a, a report for that. Now, the hilarious thing, however, if you do what InfluenceWatch.org and the InfluenceWatch podcast do, if you connect dots on the funding, what do you find when you look at that report in its acknowledgments of its funders? You see them gushingly praising the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. McCarthy Uh, MacArthur Foundation for being so remarkably open and flexible in their willingness to receive and process our requests for funding in lightning speed. Now, of course, what this meant is that those two billionaire foundations, which for years had advocated for net neutrality, were literally paying for the research to review the research that they had already paid for so that friendly government officials could then turn around and say, see, we are simply doing what the data-driven decision-making right. it, process it, it's requires. The, it's, the, it's the same thing that that uh, the left is very adamant about when businesses do it. Uh, when businesses 
commission university or commission think tank research, you know, they'll go grab their pots and pans and start banging on them that this is just, you know, research for hire. They're delivering whatever outcome that they were, um, that they were commissioned to deliver. In fact, you know, whether it's an ideological foundation or whether it's a business, everybody really knows which researchers are going to make assumptions in their social science research, which is notoriously imprecise, that will favor one outcome over the other. And so it doesn't matter, again, whether you're a business looking for, um, looking for a, a favorable uh, research light or whether you're a uh, you know, an advocacy group or a or a foundation with an ideological bent, you can find somebody who will, following all the rigors of the discipline, just happens to be a not terribly rigorous discipline, will give you an answer that more or less satisfies you. It's this. It's similar to how the media has covered the 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 general fight over net neutrality. They've been very adamant about the involvement of the ISPs and that the uh, the pro Ajit Pai side is hopelessly tied to the ISPs, both because Pai himself formerly worked for the ISPs and because the ISPs want the role withdrawn. Uh, but very little is said about the content providers, the edge companies, and the fact that they have a vested financial interest in the uh, in the rule in the net neutrality rule staying. And so, again, when John Oliver goes on HBO and says, look at what a horrible thing Ajit Pai is doing, that neutrality needs to stay or the Internet will die, please write your three million comments to the FCC, John Oliver is an employee of HBO, which delivers a substantial amount of its content through HBO Go over the Internet. Yes. Which, through, which, video, through video streaming. <laughs> which, which I'm sure he'll get around to mentioning at some point. But Third Tuesday and never. <laughs> the, uh, the the other thing now, you're, let's let's also point out that uh, the pro net neutrality side warns that even though there's virtually no actual examples of this, but warns that you know your internet service provider might end up uh, blocking entirely uh, some website that you like because it's unruly or it's opposed to the corporate interests and all that. Well, uh, that is a theoretical possibility, I suppose, but I can think of a lot of very concrete examples of the content providers on the other side of this fight, uh, very much throttling, uh, and shutting down, uh, groups. There's the, the great story of, uh, the producer of this podcast is Jake Klein, uh, who runs, uh, our, uh, all of our film and video work, and he did a wonderful video just a couple of weeks ago on uh, attacking identity politics on the left and the right. It was as, I would say, about as fair as you could possibly be, and certainly was anti-all supremacist in uh, uh, supremacist right. yeah, ideologies yeah, I, of any kind. Right, and now, a little bit of background, Facebook and Google combined for 85% of online ad revenue. And Google alone, 80% of internet search. If you're looking for monopolists in the, in the internet space, I think you're more likely to find them on the edge provider side rather than the internet service provider side. Even when, theoret you know, even when theoretically individual consumers, as far as I'm aware, the only wired internet provider to my house is Comcast, mm -hmm. um, may be in a situation where they don't have a choice in, say, their wired internet provision. 
course, then I can go use my wireless and whatever. Um, but you know, if I'm going to access the the internet search, I'm going to use Google. If I'm going to uh, you know talk to my friends, it's going to be Facebook. Um, so what happened with with uh, Capital Research Center's video with Jake's video is, despite the fact that it not only did not endorse but condemned uh, ethnic supremacism, it was blocked by the automatic system that you, YouTube uses to determine what's bad naughty videos and what's good fluffy happy bunny videos. Uh, and then even upon even on appeal, when it's ostensibly supposed to be reviewed by a, by a human being, the the suspend the 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 age restriction on it was upheld. And that really does affect the ability of cons- the ability of consumers if you're not logged into YouTube. If you're not logged into your Google account, you can't access age restricted videos. Um, you cannot I believe you cannot advertise age restricted videos. Is that correct? I'm, I'm not certain about that, although I do know that in this particular case, uh, uh, when the video was put on our Facebook page, there were issues with trying to advertise uh, using Facebook, the other great controller yeah, the other of great, advertising the other great, on the uh, internet. Other half of the duopoly in in the internet. Um, and and of course, you know, Capital Research Center isn't alone in this. Uh, everything from uh, you know Twitter block uh, Twitter blocked a political ad by a Republican candidate that discussed her opposition to abortion. Uh, YouTube has age-locked videos by uh, a conservative commentator, Dennis Prager. Uh, now, he's suing in that case, uh, so yes, that will he, be interesting he is, to see. He is, he is going to court. Um, YouTube is even blocking liberal videos that are attempting to expose Holocaust deniers um, and to say, these are these people, they're bad people, this is what he said. Um, and And... The again, the FCC has taken note of this uh, in in defense of of withdrawing the net neutrality rules. Uh, Chairman Chairman Pai has suggested that edge companies quote routinely block or discriminate against content they don't like, and this is actually happening and it's actually been seen. You know, obviously we don't know uh, what you know we don't fully know what's going to happen, what the internet service providers are going to do now that they have at least for the t- for the time being freedom uh, from net neutrality or the imminent imposition of net neutrality. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see whether the competition behaves as, you know, free market people believe that competition will at least sand off the, the roughest edges. Yes, it's no guarantee that no corporation anywhere will do bad things. Sometimes corporations do stupid and bad things, but when you have a relatively free market, that provides opportunities for innovators to do other things that will draw people that will to draw, them. That will draw people away from the old, the old service that's doing bad things to the new yes. service that's doing good things. Whereas if government regulators sitting in Washington, D.C. have enormous power over an entire sector, it is very unlikely that any innovation of any kind comes about. And in fact, we should mention a critical data point in this debate is that after the 2015 net neutrality rules came into effect, 
uh, investment in broadband access declined, even though, of course, under the evil old regime without net neutrality, it had been going upward for years and years. Um, I do want to throw in one more thing on uh, uh, Robert McChesney and the Free Press folks. Uh, this, if you go on their website today, you will see the horror stories that may happen with internet service providers. But I think you should go back uh, and look up w everything that they said in a previous uh, time when they were warning of Armageddon and disaster. And that was when uh, around the turn of this century, when AOL, uh, then one of the leading uh, giants in all things remember, internet. Remember that. Remember the the little the little CDs that they would send you with like what a hundred free hours. <laughs> yes. Uh, so AOL was a was a massively powerful uh, corporation um, with an astronomical market cap, uh, and it wanted to merge with Time Warner, which had failed in its efforts to get uh, much internet play, but had massive quantities of content of movies and books and magazines and the rest. It was So uh, if go look up what Mr. McChesney said back then. This was going to be horrific. Everything that you ever read or see or watch will be completely controlled by one evil corporation. Well, of course, for those folks uh, listening who have been to business school, you know that the merger that was going to be crushing to all uh, is free now, speech is now recognized as one of the worst business decisions in the history of American business. Yes, <laughs> one of the one of the companies involved lost over ninety percent of its value in twelve months. Um, so this was somewhat short of Armageddon. In fact, it was, oh, it was Armageddon. Armageddon for the company, not Armageddon yes. for the public. Yes. The the, the the public and free speech uh, and the rest did survive. So, well, uh, uh, we, should, we can close out by just saying that uh, there is quite a possibility that this is not the end of the net neutrality fights because in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans are talking yeah, about this possible is, legislation. This is going to gonna go on for, for a while. Uh, the, the edge companies, uh, entertainers who use the edge companies' services— are going to continue pushing for net neutrality to be restored, either under Title II or under new legislation. Um, so no, this is not over. This is gonna this is gonna be around for for a while, at least un, until the structure of the business of the internet changes. Probably. Yep. Well, uh, that is our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. Uh, you can find our pages by searching for Capital Research Center. Uh, and if you're watching the video version, uh, we want to encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week. See you next week.